Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. A hugely massive thank you to Matt, Kylie, and Bethany. I sincerely appreciate your support. If you have found value in the podcast, I'd like to invite you to head over to patreon.com slash marinebiolife to support the show. For less than the price of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help to keep the podcast episodes coming. Now, on to today's show, I have a really special guest, and it is my friend Lori, who I met in college, and we bonded over sea turtles. And so for episode 30, I thought it'd be really fun to bring her on the show to just chat all about sea turtles. So Lori, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I can't wait to talk sea turtles with you. I kind of want to go into like where we bonded over turtles because, you know, it wasn't like we sat in class and like passed notes back and forth about (laughs) sea turtles, right? (laughs) (laughs) No, definitely not. (laughs) So do you want to describe the lab that we worked in during our undergrad and what was what it was all about and some of the responsibilities? Yeah, so we worked at the um, FAU's Marine Lab at Gumbo Limbo Nature Center, which is in Boca Raton, under the direction of Dr. Jeanette Weinekin. She was the turtle master. And so what we were doing is um, gender ratio studies on local turtles that we had in the area, so loggerheads, greens, and leatherbacks, and um, basically raising them up in the lab. Um, It's one of the only labs in the world that was doing successful and is still doing um, successful husbandry with leatherbacks, which is really cool. So if you ever have a chance to make it over to Gumbo, be sure to stop into the FAU's uh, marine lab and take a look because there's a lot of cool stuff in there and you'll get to see all the little turtles on leashes and in baskets and (laughs) all the cool things going on there. Um, So yeah, that's where... Kara and I initially met um, working for Dr. Weineken and um, just working in the lab. So, yeah. So, um, <laughs> if anybody's listened to episode four with Boris Hezak, this is the same lab that he and I worked at. And the reason why sea turtles are in baskets or on leashes is because uh, we have to keep track of individual turtles. And the ones that are on leashes are leatherbacks, which perpetually swim. And if we let them go in the tanks, they would perpetually bump the rostrums against the sides of the tank. Um, and then we should also say we do release them. They are only kept until they are a certain size, which is usually only a few months. And then they get a free ride out to the Gulf Stream and released. So we're mm-hmm. not holding them until hostage forever. Right. Right, that is important to note. (laughs) All right, I always like to start each episode with a joke. And you know, I'm not gonna lie, I kind of had a hard time finding like a decent sea turtle joke. So if anybody knows any, please email me some because I. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I I, I was gonna say the ones I found were pretty bad too. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of good dad jokes in there for sure. So if you uh, are looking for some material, definitely Google sea turtle jokes because you'll get some (laughs) (laughs) 
All right. Well, my my joke is definitely could definitely file under dad jokes and corny jokes. So that's kind of my jam. Jam. Okay, this is my joke. <laughs> what? <laughs> what is the Leatherback's favorite sandwich? A PB and J jellyfish sandwich. Yes. Did you <laughs> see that on your hunt? I didn't. I did not. That's a pretty good one, actually. Um. That's definitely better than mine. I had two. One was turtle related and one was kind of just marine related in general. Sorry, so give me the corny jokes. All right. This one's really corny. Um, what kind of photos do sea turtles take? Shelfies. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, it's going to be something with the shell. I just can't tell what it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness and the other one was why are there fish at the bottom of the sea why because they dropped out of school oh, oh. <laughs> i know <laughs> love it so we have we're, since this is kind of like a special episode we're going to do something special and throw a poem in and Laura you wrote an epic poem that I'm really excited to share would you mind reading it for the listeners yeah so I wasn't sure if I wanted to share this um a little pretext to this I was uh working in the gulf of Mexico offshore on the BP oil spill after I graduated college and I would be out there for about a month at a time come back in for a week go back out and it was during that time being offshore, um, it was my first, I mean, I was working in the lab uh, as a sea turtle biologist, but this was kind of like my first real marine biology job. And I wrote, <laughs> I wrote this poem, which I think is kind of corny, but Kara thinks it's okay. So I, <laughs> I don't know, I guess I'll share it. I, I don't mind sharing it. Um, I but because Coming, I think that there's so many people that can relate to it. So Yeah, so it's, it's basically written from the perspective of being offshore. Um, so you'll kind of get an idea of where my head was at when I wrote it. Okay. I hear the soft lap of water on the bow. Off in the distance, the sun is setting now. Brilliant orange and red rays aglow light up the clouds above from below. I breathe in deep the salty air set adrift in the middle of nowhere. I close my eyes and clear my mind, give thanks for the day and the happiness I find. Peace settles in, my eyes on the horizon. I smile to myself because I'm doing what I love. So vast, so deep, there are secrets she still keeps. She still beckons me to seek what's seemingly out of reach. A little girl's dreams have come true, followed her heart and stayed true to herself. Others that doubted she forgives for not believing in her. Those that supported she hopes to inspire. That nothing's impossible if you're determined to succeed. Follow your heart and achieve your dreams. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Well, what was some of the stuff that you were doing on the boat? Because <clears throat> I think people hear you just like we're out for a month at a time working on the oil spill. And that raises some questions. So what were some of the tasks that you were doing? Yeah, so I was a part of the NERDA project, which was the Natural Resource Damage Assessment. Um, team basically and we were doing deep sea research uh, that was my main project so we are working with the Mach 10 
um, which is the multiple opening closing environmental sensing systems, I believe is the acronym for that. And we were towing to around 1500 meters up to the surface. And so what the Machinus has is multiple nets as the name describes. So you can sample discrete levels of the water column. So we were trying to just get an idea of what was living in each section of the water column. So diversity, biomass, um, and we are towing at the basically sun up and sun down. So every night in the ocean, which most people don't realize is the largest migration on the face of the earth. Mm -hmm. And that's the vertical migration of plankton to the surface. And so um, we were sampling during these times and we would tow for, I think we're towing for six hours at a time. Um, and then we would just basically take take the, those organisms that we were collecting, we'd sort them, we'd fix them, and we were sending them off to various labs to be analyzed. But we were um, getting kind of like a rough estimate on board as well. But um, all of the data that we were collecting offshore, whether it was physical or biological, was um, being sent basically off to different labs. And since it was part of the ongoing investigation, you know, obviously there was a lot of legality around it. And so um, everything had chain of custody and it was very strictly monitored. So um, we were just basically doing a lot of collection at that time, just gathering as much data as we could. Yep. So on a big boat offshore, throwing nets in the water, collecting cool things. Exactly. Not Every biologist dream. Yep. <laughs> not, not a bad first job on college at all. No, <laughs> it wasn't. It was amazing. I loved it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Yeah, I, you're welcome. I, I said I wouldn't interview Lori, but it's <laughs> a little bit of a backstory. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. All right. So we're going to deviate back to the sea turtles, our theme for today. And some things I wanted to note, and I want to kind of dive a little bit into a couple of the species, but there are seven species of sea turtle found worldwide If for listeners. Uh, they are the loggerhead, the green, the olive ridley, the Kemp's ridley, the hawksbill, leatherback, and then the flatback, which is only found in Australia, fun fact. And all of these sea turtles are either threatened or endangered depending on where you are in the world but all of them are on some sort of protection and all of them are under some sort of duress and their numbers are significantly less than they have been in the past so it's important to note this because then we can kind of move forward actually Lori, what's your favorite sea turtle do you have a favorite i actually do i i love the leatherbacks there's really a lot to love there in general, I mean, they're huge. They're the largest marine reptile in the world. They dive the deepest, they travel the farthest, they tolerate the coldest water temperatures. Like they're just a really cool animal in general. Yes, I, that's, they're my favorite as well. And I think, I mean, they're the only ones that like cold water, which is funny because I really don't. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I love that they are like the truly pelagic, Turtles. Yes, like they just want to be. They don't. They only come to shore to nest, and that's it. They're gone. You don't see yep. them. They're totally yep. offshore, which I don't know. It, it seems very um, 
Freeing. Yeah, very free. Very free. <laughs> Bring me that yeah. horizon, right? Kind of brings that on you. I love that. Um, exactly. But I will say that loggerheads and greens also have a little soft spot in my heart because those are the other two species of sea turtles that we have nesting here in South Florida. And I wanted to chat for a couple minutes about those three um, because one, that's what we are most familiar with. Um, so we can kind of chat for a long time if we, <laughs> we wanted to about all of them. How long do you want this podcast to be? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> Um, but there, you know, that's, that's why I'm just going to limit it to three because <laughs> we chatted about all seven of them. We couldn't possibly cover the depth of what we want no. to cover. Well, let's chat about the leatherback for a minute. I mean, Lori kind of covered a lot of it with the heaviest, the biggest, the deepest. Mm -hmm. Leatherbacks in general. So, I mean, let's just go over it. The average weight of a leatherback is going to be between 500 and 1500 pounds. And the largest ever recorded was 10 foot long and weighed 2,000 pounds. That's a large animal. Um, and their average carapace length, which is the shell, the top shell, is six foot. And I mean, I'm six foot tall, so <laughs> it's, it's easy for me to kind of imagine how long that is. But that's a very large turtle. So, yeah, that's kind of some of the general specs. They lay the largest eggs as well. Um, they don't actually have a hard shell like the other species do. They kind of have these bony platelets that fit together. So when they dive down, that, that, that's what actually allows them to dive down so deep over 3,000 feet is because these bony platelets are actually able to compress. If they had a hard shell, it would crack. Um, so they're just really adapted very well for what they do out in the open ocean, the pelagic ranges. Um, they're a really cool animal. And the fact that they primarily eat jellyfish, which is insane that such a large animal can sustain itself on jellyfish alone pretty much is pretty incredible. Which jellyfish apparently have lots of protein. They do. If you think about them, I think Dr. Weineken described it best to me. She was like, jellyfish are like little grocery bags of plankton, if you think about it. So really, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of water in there, but it's concentrated plankton. So it's yeah. a good way to put it. I mean, kind of like not great because leatherbacks also eat grocery bags. Um, <laughs> Sadly, yes, right. which I'm sure we'll cover later. Yeah, yeah we'll get, but, we'll get uh, more into that later. But that's a good way to put it is that they are just vessels of phytoplankton which well, yeah in general which have lots of protein so that makes sense exactly exactly crazy apples mm -hmm. i love the leathery beast so loggerhead so a lot of people especially in south florida and turtle people take the loggerhead for granted a little bit and it's because they are the most prolific nesters here they they're the smallest mm -hmm. turtle that we have nesting here and they they're just their numbers are crazy abundant um they're and we actually vie for a top spot in the entire world for loggerhead nesting which is really incredible when you stop and think about it mm -hmm. and when you're but when you're on the beach it's like every every crawl almost is a loggerhead and then you might get a surprise green or leather back in there which is awesome too um mm -hmm. so we love the loggerheads they 
I mean, their name is funny, right? Like a log. Why is it called a loggerhead? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because biologists are smart and we just call it like it is. We name things based on what they look like. <laughs> I chatted with a biologist in Thailand. Um, actually, his episode was just released. It's episode 28 with Raul. Uh, he was like, I'm over this. We need to start coming up and being more creative. <laughs> so he's like, like taking this upon himself to like name things differently, uh -huh. um, which I love. So he's finding different species of nudibranchs and he's just naming them different things based on like his interests or like the people that have influenced him in his life. And I'm like, that's the one way to do it. <laughs> yeah. Like, Oh, it's got a big head. So therefore it's a longer head. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, it's got a flat back. Let's call it a flat back <laughs> <laughs> or a leather back. Right. I know. <laughs> oh my goodness. But the loggerhead's head actually how, why it's so big. It houses all these really powerful muscles that help them to chomp down on their prey. And some of their favorite snacks are like are conchs and crabs, which I'm, if anybody think, can think of a conch shell, it is super hard and super thick. And to be able to, like if you and I tried to bite into the shell of a conch, we'd break our teeth. And like, oh, yeah. they can do it and just crush it, which is insane. Insane to think about. Oh yeah, definitely. So they are, they're cool. They're cool cats. We'll keep them around. They are. We, we definitely underrate the, the loggerhead for sure. Um, I mean, we were talking about this before. They're one of our favorite nests to dig because mm -hmm. they're so shallow. <laughs> but yeah, they're, they're everywhere. And it is kind of cool that we do vie for that top spot. Um, I was actually looking up the other day. And the most important nesting beaches for loggerheads are in Brevard, Indian River, St. Lucia, Lucia, Martin, and Palm Beach County. So that's all right on our coast here, which is, mm -hmm. it's really cool. That's really cool. Special title. So Greenie Babies. In the lab, they were my favorite because yeah. I like their mischievousness. So greens are very active. And, I, and it's funny, if you get all three species of hatchlings together, you can really see the difference. So loggerheads are like, I don't know, I feel like they're pretty middle of the road. They kind of like move, but they're not like super fast or slow. They're just kind of like going along at their own pace. Leatherbacks they have their pelagic swimmers, right? So they have these huge, long flippers that extend like past their carapace and they're really dopey on land. So like watching them crawl into the water from the beach, it's just like walking, watching somebody with dive flippers on trying to walk on land. Like it just That's doesn't, true. It doesn't. And then like a lot of the times they'll do a little circle and they're just very awkward. And then you get the greens and they are like a mile a minute and they like in the lab they would be trying to climb out of these baskets you'd have you have to label them somehow we would use non-toxic nail polish and put it on the carapace and have to redo it because they would wrap up on things and get out of their baskets and you have to remember which one's which so you can feed them properly um but if you get them all lined up on the beach the green will win every time i'll put my money that's that's the hair mm -hmm. the rest of them mm -hmm. are truly the tortoise or the turtles they're yeah. the hair. They're super fast and funny. Yeah, they're, they're like the Labrador retrievers of the lab. Like, they're <laughs> like these, they're so excited all the time. Like you said, they just have all this energy, but you'd have to, to just see them, like you said, all kind of lined up to 
understand the energy that the green has. <laughs> mm -hmm. So greens are fun. Um, and that's probably the most common turtle that people think of because they are so charismatic that I feel like when you look up sea turtle on Google, it's mostly green sea turtles. Um, yeah. They're like the friendliest or like least afraid of people is what it seems like. Um, mm -hmm. It's actually what Crush from Finding Nemo is based off of, his green sea turtle. Fun fact. Mm -hmm. You know, scientists did name them green because parts of them are green, but it's not because their, their uh, skin or their shell is green, which is kind of fun. You want to share why? Yeah, so they actually have green body fat. Mm -hmm. um, and it comes from eating so much seagrass. So right. greens have serrated jawlines, it's not really teeth, but it's serrated jaws, and they can actually mow the grass like a lawn, seagrass like a lawnmower. And so they'll clip the grass, and they eat so much of it that it turns their fat and tissues green. And that's mm -hmm. how they got their name. Fun facts. Fun facts about greens. <laughs> yeah, they actually, um, that's primarily what they use for turtle soup, or used to use for turtle soup. I'm sure you can still get it in certain countries, so. Yeah, yeah, Grand Cayman, I think, still has turtle farms, and they're all green sea turtles. That they are. I have a fun fact about that later. We covered leatherbacks the biggest. The Kemp's Ridley is the smallest sea turtle, and that's also found in Florida, just not in as big a numbers as the leatherback, loggerhead, or green. Um, and I have a fun fact about that later. How about that? Ooh, I can't wait. <laughs> 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 um, so I wanted to kind of go over some general life cycle stuff with turtles and this does change worldwide um, obviously we come from the perspective of the east coast of the US mm -hmm. um, so that's mostly where we're coming from when we talk about life cycles of turtles and where they're going um, but for the most part sea turtles hatch and they go out to the ocean and find something big to float on and they eat whatever's floating there with them. So it could be other small fish or shrimp or what kind of je little jellies, things that they can ingest and they grow and grow and grow. And then eventually they come back to about where they hatch from and nest if they're female. On average, it takes about 25 years to reach sexual maturity. So this is a really long lifespan. Yeah, and they actually, um, they're going to nest multiple times within a season, and then every two to three years after that. So they, it's, you know, when you see them nest, you, it could be their first nest, it could be their fourth nest of the season, depending on, you know, where we're at in, in the season as well. But I think that's also kind of neat to realize that they're nesting multiple times in one season. Mm -hmm. And then they don't come back the next year. Correct. A lot of energy. So it takes a Correct. ton of energy to create all those eggs and dig all those holes and lay them yeah. all. And then, and then they take a break, which makes total sense. Right. I mean, like you said, they're very clumsy on land. I mean, they're graceful in the water, but as soon as you get those things on land, oh my gosh, the effort it takes to haul their bodies up there. And then they got to some of them are false body pitting and then they're going and doing another body pit and then they're digging and it's a lot of effort mm -hmm. to lay these eggs and then they cover them up and they say bye-bye and they <laughs> just leave. I've heard uh, 
mothers of teenagers being told, you know, kind of the life cycle of a turtle. And she's like, wait, hold on. The turtle digs the nest, lays the eggs, covers it up and says, peace out. And doesn't actually have to like raise them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, how do I sign up for that? I think she's having some issues at home. Um, <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> a little fun fact. When you see them, up on land laying sometimes well most times you'll see tears almost coming out of their eyes and a lot of people will say like oh the turtle's weeping or the turtle's crying um yes i guess if you (laughs) think of it that way uh but it's actually just excess salt being removed from the turtle's body which is kind of interesting so and they are doing this all the time. It's not just one. They are. Yeah, exactly. So they're doing this all the time. It's an adaptation they have, but it's just in the water. Obviously, it's being um, washed away. You're not going to be able to see the tears in the water. So Amazing adaptations. Exactly. Trees that uptake saltwater, like red mangroves, will excrete it on mm-hmm. the leaves. and Or that's not right. mangroves. But, and then turtles excrete it through their tears. It's kind of crazy. Nature mm-hmm. Exactly. Yep. And it's also, I guess, important to note that um, only like one in a thousand actually make it to adulthood. So that's why they have to lay so many eggs. You know, they're, they're not putting a lot of effort into their youngs, obviously, they're not caring for them. So, um, and, you know, with that being said, they have a lot of hurdles they have to mm-hmm. get over just just to survive to reproductive age. I mean, everything's trying to eat them. They're small. They have no direction. They're just using, you know, visual and auditory cues just to make it to the ocean. So, um, yeah, I mean, they're literally born buried alive. I I don't know how bad it can get for you (laughs) in terms of starting life buried alive. Like that's pretty bad. So yeah, they don't really have a, a big success rate or survival rate. Right. Which is why it's our responsibility to do as much as we can to help the natural cycles do their thing and lessen our impacts because the natural cycles, like you mentioned, are really real. So they get out on the beach and if the raccoons or the coyotes, or the foxes didn't dig them up out of their nest and they actually make it on the beach. Now the raccoons still might get them or the crabs or the birds if it's daytime. And then once mm-hmm. they're in the water, everything likes to eat them from different mahi, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> mahi, tarpon. I mean, all different kinds of fish. And then seabirds, if they see a sea turtle, favorite snack, favorite snack award for sure. Yep. So definitely, they definitely have a hard go of it um, starting out because they are small. I mean, they're less than the size of the palm of your hand when they when they're hatched out. And then they grow mm-hmm. to be. I mean, loggerheads are this, like I said, the smallest that we have nesting here. But it's still a 300-pound animal. I think that's what most people have misconceptions about is, especially people that don't live near the ocean, is when they, they hear the word sea turtle, if they've never seen one, they're thinking of these little turtles that you see in a pond, you know, or a lake or whatever. And then when they actually see a sea turtle and their massive size, I mean, yes, loggerhead is smaller in comparison to a leatherback, but like you said, that's still a 300 pound animal. Even the um, Kemp's, which is the smallest sea turtle in the world, still is like, what is that, 150 pounds, 100 pounds? Yeah, I about mean, 100 pounds. That's, you know, 
that's not that's, nothing to sneeze at. That's not a five-pound pond turtle. No, no, it's not. It's not. They're uh, substantial in size, that's yes. for sure. Yes. So here in Florida and up and down the east coast of the U.S., this fluctuates a little bit, but nesting season runs from March 1st through October 31st. Um, the further north you go, the less the season is because of they actually have seasons, um, mm -hmm. and we really don't. Um, they're much more mild. Worldwide, sea turtles nest in the summertime is the general rule of thumb. Mm -hmm. so obviously, that can fluctuate with the months and the changing of the seasons. On average, sea turtles will lay, we mentioned they will come back and lay a couple, couple of nests each year, and in each nest is anywhere from 70 to about 130 eggs on average. There have been anomalies up to 200 eggs in one nest, which is kind of insane to think about. That's a lot of eggs. That's a lot of eggs. And they're on average about the size of a ping pong ball to give people an idea. And they're not hard like a chicken egg. They're soft. They're rubbery because otherwise, like if you dropped, they're digging a hole and they dig them about as long as their back flippers are. So depending on the size of turtles, so loggerheads, about a you know, foot, foot and a half down, Leatherbacks, this could be like a four foot hole. Like they have really long flippers. And if you drop a couple chicken eggs on top of each other in a four foot hole, that's gonna crack. All these sea turtles, they're all their eggs are more rubbery feeling and they will kind of bounce a little bit and then settle in and they don't crack when they are dropped from heights like that. Nope, they don't. This is like really nitty gritty. But do we know if there's like different densities? to the shells so like i mean leatherbacks drop from a greater height on average right. than like other species like do they have thicker thicker shells you think yeah. um you know i'm not really sure i'm sure we could look in the literature and some biologist has done a study on that i'm sure um but off the top of my head i i don't i don't know the answer to that things for further study <laughs> right I feel like that covers a lot of the general stuff about sea turtles. Do you have anything else to add? I think we pretty much covered it. I mean, there's a lot of things that we could cover, honestly, but we're just trying to give you an overview of. We, you covered, know, we talked about digging in their nest and we should say why we do that. Say why, why we dig their nest? Yeah. Why do sea, sea turtle biologists <laughs> dig in sea turtle nests? Right, because we, we love strong shoulders, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> and we love uh, body pitting to dig a hole for a leatherback nest, and then hooking your feet under the ATV so you can get further into the hole and still not reach the bottom. Mm -hmm. We just like we like work. We like work. We like being really sandy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so during the summertime here in Florida and elsewhere in the U.S., up and down the east, eastern seaboard, sea turtle nests are monitored daily. Um, and you know what? This isn't just the eastern seaboard. I should not exclude the Gulf of Mexico because they do sea turtle monitoring as well. Yes, they do. Yeah. Um, shout out Gulf of Mexico. So <laughs> Shout out Sanibel Island. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's places in Texas. There are. 
Lots huh. of places in Texas, yes. There are biologists that go out most mornings here. It's every single morning uh, during the summertime and look for new crawls. So this is literally the tracks of a crawl of a sea turtle coming up the beach. And depending on what the crawl looks like, you can tell what species the sea turtle is because they all have unique crawls. If a turtle nests, or even if it doesn't nest, we document what the turtle did when it came out of the water, whether it just turned around and went back in, which is what we call a false crawl, or if it maybe made it like a little pit and started to think about nesting, but then said, no, I don't like this for whatever reason, and then went back in, we would call that still a false crawl, but with a body pit, um, or if it nested. And if it nested, people that go to the beach in the summer times and see like the cute little marked off nests, that's only a small portion of the nests. We would be out there all day and all night if we marked it, if we marked every single nest. So we don't. Um, we just kind of take a GPS point. We know where it is. We'll kind of keep an eye on the general area, but we only mark a certain subset of these nests. And the ones that we do mark, we do check every single day. We wait for them to hatch out. And three days after they hatch, We'll go in and because we want things to be as natural as possible. So we'll go in three days after they hatch and dig up what's left in the what's left in the clutch. So ideally, in a perfect world, we're digging up only hatched papery eggs and it's beautiful. But you know, it's nature and that doesn't that doesn't happen all the time. Doesn't usually <laughs> actually. Um, it's wonderful when it does. So we see how many eggs hatched, how many didn't, and if there's any live or dead turtles in the, in the nest. And that's what we call the reproductive success. And that is why we dig into nests and get really sandy in the process because documenting the crawl is only part of the story. Seeing what actually happens in the nest is another part of the story. Correct. And the more we can correlate that data with, um, you know, what we have experience with, with Dr. Weineken, she has these temperature loggers. So you can correlate the hatchling success due to whatever the physical parameters of the nest were, temperature, moisture, things like that. The more data, the better, especially when it comes to managing a species. So we've come to this part of the episode where I wanted to try to surprise each other with facts that we may or may not know about sea turtles. <laughs> and I'm like looking over my facts going, Lori may know this because she reads a lot of literature. <laughs> I just learned it, so it's surprising to me. So we'll see if I can surprise you. Okay. All right. Again, this is Florida-centric, but we have a body of water located here called the Indian River Lagoon. And we have green sea turtles that hang out here because there's lots of seagrass and they're usually juvenile green sea turtles. So this is common worldwide. If you live in tropical or subtropical climates and have a body of water, you might have some green sea turtles hanging out there if there's seagrass present. So I learned that the sea turtles that are here aren't just born here. They're not just locals. They come from Mexico, the Caribbean, Costa Rica, Brazil, Ascension Island, like West Africa, Mediterranean. I, there's genetic studies that showed like where these turtles are coming from. And it blew my mind. I had no idea. I thought they were all from here. I guess that kind of makes sense that there's different foraging grounds. So it's probably a major foraging ground. But yeah, that's crazy that through genetics they can trace that and see mm -hmm. exactly where each turtle's coming from that's that's really cool Isn't that cool yeah that was a study by uh doc Earhart. 
<laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. The facts that I have, well, two of them are kind of history lessons, which, you know, you may or may not know. I thought they were kind of cool. And then another one is a study. So okay. I'll do one of the history lessons first. So in the mid 1800s, merchants discovered that they could keep turtles alive by flipping them on their backs and keeping them in the shade. Um, and by the 18 and by 1878, 15,000 greens were shipped from Florida and the Caribbean to England because there was a really big demand on turtles um, because they would eat their meat, they'd use their hide, they use their fat, as we talked about with the greens for uh, green turtle soup. And actually, Key West was a major processing center for the trade of turtles back in that time. And so what they would do is they would take the turtles, they'd capture them, and they keep them in these shallow water corrals um, in Key West before they were shipped off to England, which I thought was a really interesting factoid slash history lesson. Interesting history lesson. My next fact is like part, I'm just going to read it. So leatherbacks have been found off of Nova Scotia. Like I tell people this and it still blows my mind. And like, I'm sure you knew, knew this as well. Mm -hmm. But did you know they've been spotted off of Iceland, Norway, like Alaska, beyond the Arctic Circle? Like I did actually just read that recently. <laughs> and it no, but it, it blew my mind too. Cause I, I didn't realize the range was that far. Right? Into, like they into were the cold. Right. They were they were spotted swimming in the Barents Sea, which I had to look up where that was. It is north of the Norwegian Sea. It is yes. like solidly in the Arctic Circle. And they're like swimming around icebergs in zero degrees Celsius water. This is freezing seawater. This is a reptile. And they're like, I don't care. There's jelly. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's absolutely insane. No cold stunning of leatherbacks in Florida, that's for sure. It's amazing. <laughs> they, they laugh at our cold stunning events. That's true. Oh yes. Cold, so cold stunning. I guess I guess one of the reasons why this is so incredible is that the other sea turtles act more like reptiles and they like to stick to a warmer water. And if it gets too cold, like in the sixties Fahrenheit, I'm not sure what that translates to Celsius, they'll 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 die. They like or they get really lethargic and then, then they can die from it. It happened mm -hmm. um, a bunch of years ago. We had a really, really cold winter here in Florida, cold for Florida winter. And we had a lot of cold stun turtles and a lot of them ended up dying. Just So the fact that leatherbacks can, like intentionally seek out and live in these Arctic conditions blows my mind. And that is why they are so cool. I like that one a lot. Mm-hmm. All right. My second history lesson is about the Cayman Islands. Mm. Um, as we know, they were discovered by Christopher Columbus. He named them Las Tortugas after seeing numerous sea turtles swimming around the islands. And he actually wrote about it. On his second voyage, he wrote, in those 20 leagues, the sea was thick with them so numerous that it seemed that the ships would run aground on them and were as if bathing in them. And then on a fourth voyage, he had his son, Bernadette, 
described the Cayman Islands as two very small and low-lying islands full of turtles, as was all the sea about. So they looked like little rocks. And they estimated that at the time, the Cayman Islands had several million animals in their population, which to me is completely mind-blowing. So it just kind of goes to show you, um, I mean, how much they thrived back then. Mm -hmm. And then to now, where we've pushed them on the brink of, you know, they're endangered and they need protection. So um, just to give you an idea of the numbers, I mean, I can't even imagine millions of turtles in one area for a population. That's just insane to me. That's a really cool visual. Yeah, I thought so. Love it. Seas were teeming with turtles. You covered one of my leatherback factoids earlier that they've been recorded down to a thousand meters, which is like roughly 3000 feet. Which is over half a mile, which like the pressure at that depth is insane, which is why like they, they have the leather back and they can compress and, you know, all their organs can compress like the mammalian diving reflex, but they're not mammals. So because you already said that one, <laughs> I got to back up. I thought it was interesting. There's been observed patterns of swimming for the leatherbacks. They're different in the north. They'll stay at the surface a lot. So with, as they get into colder water, they'll hang out the surface more and more to try to like warm up and get in the sun and then versus mm-hmm. down south in their nesting grounds they wow. are stay mostly underwater that is interesting yeah. didn't know that so i thought that was really interesting and i wonder if it's partially it's cooler not at the surface down down here and like if they can handle being in freezing cold water like they probably want to stay a little as cool as possible but I also wonder if some of that is a little bit of learned behavior because there's so much more boat traffic in warmer water and it's mm-hmm. like learn to stay low. Yeah, that would be that would be interesting, but definitely makes sense because we do have a lot of uh, boat strikes for turtles for sure here in Florida, especially. I have one more factoid, um, which I thought was really interesting. There was a study from 2016 on green turtles in the Southern Atlantic Ocean. And what they did was they measured trace metals in their blood samples. Um, They found that copper and lead were positively correlated with indicators of oxidative stress, which makes sense. The higher the oxidative stress, the more likely the turtle had fibropapilloma, Mm -hmm. which is a tumor-bearing disease affecting many of the green turtles that we see uh, worldwide, actually. Basically, the more copper and lead that were bioaccumulated in the tissues of these animals, they had an increased instance of fibropapilloma. Um, And I mean, we see the same thing in humans. When you increase a body burden, it lowers the immune system, which increases your disease potential. So I just thought it was interesting that the concept makes sense. But now that we're kind of starting to have the data to support that, these disease processes there's probably more to them obviously and and we're going to get it more into like the conservation side later um i thought that was an interesting an interesting fact that is really interesting all right i have one i i like was going to leave it off but i kind of really like this fact a lot because i stumbled upon it recently it's about the kemp's ridley um they nest in the gulf of mexico in largely and they nest in what's called an Arabata. That's a really American way of saying it. 
so and it's like the, the olive ridley does the same thing so in arabotic all the turtles come up to, onto the beach and nest all at once and it's the kemp's nest during the day and it's just chaos like there's turtles everywhere there's sand flying like there's it's just mayhem and that's how they nest which is very different from how the other species nest which is usually in the quiet of the night by themselves um very different so there's actually aerial footage from the 1940s of over 40,000 Kemp's Ridleys nesting on one beach in one day in the Gulf of Mexico. Wow. I'm sure that's a cool photo. Right? 40,000. Yeah. I got to see if I can find a photo of it. Or of hey, video. strength in numbers. More power to them. Right? And now they're considered one of the rarest and most endangered turtle. <laughs> Yeah, I guess in the same sense, it kind of makes it easy for poaching, too. Right. So it's, so it's a combo. It's the overharvesting of their eggs, which they're now protected, and, like, that's really illegal. But also the bycatch and trawls, gillnets, traps, dredges, you know, the fishing aspect of it. They do live close, closer to shore. Um, they hunt like loggerheads, so they'll kind of eat in mudflats, like crabs and stuff like that. So they're more susceptible to us. Their numbers mm -hmm. are now, like I said, they're the rarest and most endangered sea turtle. And they have footage of 40,000 on one beach in one day. Yeah, that's a lot of turtles. <laughs> so this kind of segues really nice into the threats. Um, so there, like we said, you know, all, all the species of sea turtles are protected. They're all considered endangered or threatened in, in some capacity worldwide. Um, and there's a myriad of things that contribute to this. As we kind of talk about each of these points, I like to I like my listeners to kind of think about what you can do to help. And obviously, we can't all do everything. But if you could pick up one little piece of this and take it home and run with it, um, and I'll try to give some like bite-sized action items for everybody. But if you can kind of think about like how this applies to where you live or what you do or how you could help and be a part of the solution or be a part of the solution as Justin takes, <laughs> I really like that a lot. It's definitely something because I don't like to just like list out all the things that are wrong and not give y'all like some action item or some way to like help because that's it's daunting. Um, but there are some things that definitely need to be brought to light if you don't know them already. And there are ways to help. So with that. Sea turtles got some stuff going. I mean, the ocean has, has some stuff going on. And, and <laughs> yeah. Sea turtles are definitely caught up in it. I think first we should just talk about commercial fishing. There's what's called TEDs, which are the turtle excluder devices. And what these are, are um, it's implemented for fishing trawls, basically, because there's a lot of bycatch uh, with shrimping and long lining but that's a different conversation um so what they did was they were trying to develop a device basically that they could put in the net and it would help turtles or larger animals escape so basically what a ted is it's it's kind of like a grid of bars and it's got an opening at the top or the bottom and they put it in the trawl net and it allows shrimp to go through those metal bars into the caught end of the net. But then when something like a turtle or a shark or something larger hits those bars, it opens up a, I, th I think you, you can think of it as like a trap door basically and releases the large animal from the net. Um, so it reduces bycatch and 
um, it's been kind of a really cool tool that's been implemented into the commercial fisheries because there is such a large number of bycatch, which is anything that you're catching outside of your target of species. Um, and sea turtles, unfortunately, they, they get caught up in that. And if they get caught in a net, they need to breathe air. A lot of times they're dragging these nets for hours at a time and then the turtles are drowning. So they needed to come up with a solution as to how to get these animals out of the net to save them, basically. Yeah. So that's kind of an overview of the TEDs. So Go I'm ahead. reading Carl Safina's um, Voyage of the Turtle book, which is where I've gotten most of my leathery beast facts for the day. <laughs> it's a really good read. And he went in the book, he kind of dives into the history of Ted's a little bit. And it's interesting. They created the Ted's in 1987, but they were small. The holes were small and they were mm -hmm. actually catching leatherbacks. And it took them 25 years for them to actually make the holes big enough for leatherbacks. And what, and there was concern over the, in the fishing industry that the bigger hole would allow a lot of more fish to go through and their catch would be less. But it was actually found that they were letting out the things that they didn't want anyway. Unfortunately, trash is one of them. But so they so it ended up helping the fishermen in some aspect, not just the turtles. So that's a nice part of it. Um, and then something else that was pointed out with the TEDs that I never really considered but makes total sense is that it's like the TEDs are really great in that they allow fishermen to go out and continue to fish um, in that in that manner and then it allows the turtles to escape but if turtles are caught up in its head it's not just like okay swim through once pop out like they're kind of swimming against the current they're trying to figure out what's going on it might take them a minute to get out of the net or a few minutes and if they're underwater for 20 minutes kind of like freaking out fighting to figuring out how to get out now their surface, they come up for air, and if they get sucked up again immediately by another net, like, and that it keeps happening, like, it can wear on them and they can drown anyway. So right. it's, the TEDs are a wonderful thing in that they've, kind of, they, they've definitely reduced the amount of bycatch and mortality from turtles, um, but they were finding turtles still coming up on the beach even after the implementation of the bigger TEDs because if they get caught more than once or twice, like, they just can't handle it. Yeah, no, and you're absolutely right. Um, and since they were developed, I mean, Noah's been working with the fishing community, and they're constantly kind of like redesigning this thing, um, trying to make it better. Um, and they're still, even though it's it's mandatory, it's required in U.S. waters, the Gulf and South Atlantic right now, you know, they're still trying to better that design, because like you said, there are still some issues with it. Mm -hmm. um, but according to Noah, they are 97% effective. <laughs> so um, they're doing something, but it's not, it's not necessarily a perfect solution, but it is helping for sure. Well, we're, we're going to leave commercial fishing at TEDs because if we dive down the rabbit hole, we, I could do a whole series of ep podcast episodes on commercial fishing, which maybe we should do. We're going to leave it at TEDs for the day, give y'all something to chew on. It's but the thing I want to highlight with the turtle excluder devices is that it did take a piece of legislation to be enacted in order for this to become law for people to do. And that takes people that care to be put into office. So vote. That's my pitch for you guys today. If you live somewhere that uses nets, 
maybe kind of examine what those nets are and how they're affecting the wildlife in your area. You may not have sea turtles, but maybe they're impacting other wildlife in different ways. So educate yourself on the commercial fishing in your area and how it impacts wildlife and how you can be a part of making it better for everybody because there is a place for fishing. I'm not there gonna, is. I'm not going to go down the rabbit hole, but yeah. there's a place for fishing and we'll leave it at that. <laughs> right. Right. But there's also responsible fishing. So, um, you know, our goal is to just try to continue to work with the fishing community and coming up with viable solutions that are affordable for them, make sense for them, and also are helping, you know, the target species that we're trying to protect in this case, sea turtles. So, um, you know, it's a continual conversation, but like you said, voting is definitely a big part of it too because a lot of times people aren't just gonna go out and do it out of the goodness of their hearts mm -hmm. which I wish was the case sometimes people need to be forced to protect <laughs> their resources <laughs> all right so next big threat and this is a really big one yes this is a big one and this is something that everybody can do every single day reduce your plastic output that's it yeah <laughs> So plastic pollution is a big one, big, big, big. So there's two types of plastic pollution or, you know, marine debris that we're going to talk about, and that's land-based, and then there's ocean-based. Um, land-based debris is going to come from the beaches, the streets, the landfills, um, obviously land-based sources. Ocean uh, plastic is going to come from maybe garbage that's disposed of by cruise ships. Um, it could be fishing gear in terms of nets or lines or anchors or ghost nets and things of that nature. Um, fun fact, 80% of marine debris actually comes from land-based sources. So that garbage patch out in the gyre not just the pacific garbage patch but in every gyre there is a garbage patch um 80 of that is from a land-based source so us on land humans live on land <laughs> so um you know it's a good place to start in terms of where we can reduce our plastic consumption um, especially single-use plastics are huge but we can go into that in a minute um, I do have some cool stats okay. on plastic pollution that I'd like to share real quick. 12.7 million tons of plastic a year go into the ocean. Since 1950, we've produced over 320 million tons of plastic. And every piece of plastic that's ever been produced still exists today. Mm -hmm. um, and we're still producing it. So a plastic bottle that can take up to 450 years to degrade in a marine environment, that's going to break down into smaller and smaller pieces, eventually making it into the microplastic category, which is plastics that aren't visible to the human eye. Um, but like I said, they never completely go away. Um, they're breaking down due to the sun, photodegradation, the wind, the waves, um, the chemicals are still persistent. 
the EPA actually estimates that 90% of plastics in the pelagic marine environment are microplastics. So mm -hmm. those plastics that have broken down, it makes sense mm -hmm. um, just based on the volume that's out there. The marine environment in general is pretty hard on things. So it's going to, um, you know, between the sun and the salt and the waves. That's a, I, I mean, you think about it and it's hard for people to visualize what they can't see. Mm -hmm. So when you think about 90% of those plastics out there are microplastics, which you can't visibly see. I mean, that's just what you don't see. Look at all the plastic we do see. Mm -hmm. And that just gives you an idea of the, just the amount of garbage that's out there. It definitely gives you pause. And one of the things we kind of chatted about earlier that is just really eye-opening is uh, last summer there was a hatchling that washed up on a beach nearby and Loggerhead Marine Life Center did an necropsy on it and which is a, an autopsy but on an animal. Um, so they opened it up to see cause of death and they found just I forget the exact number of pieces of microplastics that were in the turtle's stomach but it was like something like 30 or 50 pieces of microplastics in this three week old sea turtle's stomach. It, and that's ultimately what killed it. Um, so mm -hmm. it's affecting, you know, it's not just affecting like fish out in the ocean. It's like affecting newborn hatchlings, which is insane. Oh, of course. I mean, if you think about it, there's, there's trash on the beach. So these turtles are digging through the sand, mm -hmm. which is full of plastic they're being born in plastic they're crawling over plastic to get into a sea that's filled with plastic they're eating animals that have been eating microplastics mm -hmm. um it's it's really sad yeah and actually um a point i do want to bring up as well is that there's something called persistent bioaccumulative and toxic substances, which is PBTs. And those are basically chemicals that are resistant to degradation. They persist in the marine environment. Um, <clears throat> these chemicals concentrate on the ocean surface because they don't necessarily readily dissolve in the water. They're hydrophobic. So, when they come in contact with plastic, what they're finding is these microplastics are a magnet for these chemicals, these industrial chemicals. So not only are these plastics breaking down and releasing their own chemicals, you know, polyethylene, polypropylene, they're, they're actually collecting a lot of other industrial chemicals, whether that's PFOS, PFAS, DDT, all these other chemicals in the environment, um, they're collecting them as well. They're becoming these little magnets. So just think about in terms of bioaccumulation, you have these microplastics that have their own chemicals that they're made of, but then they're also just grabbing on to all these other industrial chemicals that are in the water system these days from industry. Um, that aren't, you know, can't be filtered out by our filtration systems or, you know, they're in there due to runoff or whatever, however they got there. Um, and then, you know, the plankton's eating them and then the smaller fish are eating the plankton and they're being magnified and bioaccumulated up the food chain. 
pain. Um, you know, that, that's also a, a, a problem, you know, that uh, like we are talking about with the, the lead and the copper, with the fibropapilloma, um, you think of these heavy metals that a lot of these animals are exposed to and are bioaccumulating, but there's also all of these other environmental toxins that are an issue as well. And we, we, we're still just scraping the surface of trying to understand how that affects their life cycle, how that affects their development, reproduction, um, health in general. Obviously, we know it's going to be a negative effect, but we don't quite, we're, we're just kind of starting to get that data, which is, um, it's good. We need it for evidence for conservation. And that's what we can use to kind of push forward in finding solutions, um, which I think is probably a good place to go next with solutions of how we can help this because we've yeah. had a little bit of doom and gloom. So yes, solutions you can make a difference. <laughs> it starts with you and me and your neighbor and your mom and your dad. Simple thing, refillable water bottles. Mm -hmm. I mean, get a stainless steel water bottle. Stop drinking out of plastic water bottles. Get a filter if you want to for your home water system. A lot of places now have filtered water. Bring a water bottle. I got two things on this one. I find an inordinate amount of plastic water bottles and plastic water bottle caps on the beach. So it's like definitely mm -hmm. thing that bothers me. But one, it's cheaper. Like by, if you're not paying for bottled water, it's cheaper. And also it's made of plastic and plastics are made of chemicals and they can leach into your water. Um, yeah. So if it's sitting out in the sun and stuff, you know, it's not the best. Um, but two, I just genuinely love my reusable water bottle because I can put ice in it and water in the morning and it will stay cold all day. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. I actually have two. I have one that's like grab and go size. And then I have like a big half gallon, like that's my refill container. If I know I'm going to be gone for long periods of time and questionable access to water fountains, I'll mm -hmm. bring my like big kahuna and leave it in the car and it still stays cold. It's great. Right. And if it gets warm, you don't have to worry. Exactly. Right. Right. Because yeah, those chemicals are leaching into your water 100%. So um, that's not good for your health. So yeah, get a re refillable water bottle. Um, they're everywhere. They're Find right. one you like, put stickers on it. I don't know, make it fun. So you'll want to use it mm -hmm. and uh, take it with you everywhere. That's one simple thing that you can do. Um, you can also bring your own grocery bag to the grocery stores. It doesn't even have to be one of those fancy bags that they sell. It can be any bag that you have. Mm -hmm. I know we all have extra bags laying around our houses, whether it's a backpack or an old Victoria's Secret bag, or I don't know, like everybody has a bag. Um, True. Put them in your car, hang them next to your door, wherever you can visually see them. Cause a lot of times people will be like, Oh, I have 50 bags, but that's because I always forget them in my car or I never remember to put them in my car and then I never have them. And then I just end up buying another one and using that. And it's so there's a little bit of a behavioral um, adjustment, I think, that needs to be made when bringing your own bag, but you can do it. 
Yeah, no, I have, so I leave mine in the car, and I have forgotten it a handful of times in the car. But you know what? It's so easy to just leave your car. It means usually at the grocery store. But, like, I'll bring a bag into any store that I'm shopping at, whether it's a hardware store or if I'm buying clothes. Like, no, I don't need your plastic bag. Thank you. I don't – even if it's not plastic. No, I don't need your bag. I, I can throw it in my purse or my, my backpack or I have my mm-hmm. bag. But I do leave it, I leave my bags in the car because I usually have my car with me when I'm out and about and it's like two minutes to run out and grab them. It's not a big deal. Exactly. Exactly. I'll leave my cart in the middle of the aisle. I'll be back in two minutes. And it's always there. I've never had anybody move it. Yeah. No, you're <laughs> absolutely right. <laughs> no one's stealing your food, right? Yeah. It's not paid for yet. Like, maybe I'll just get it off the shelf and set it out of my cart. <laughs> but... <laughs> The other things that you can do, glass over plastic for food storage in your kitchen. There's a lot of places that you can replace plastic in your kitchen, whether that's saran wrap or um, Ziploc storage bags. Switch over to silicone if you can. Silicone is fine at room temperature or in the fridge. Don't heat silicone, but room temperature or fridge is fine. Um, If you have an option to get glass food storage containers over plastic that's better too and then you're not going to be leaching chemicals into your food from the plastic as well so it's kind of a twofold um but i think it just takes each person kind of sitting down and taking a real hard look at their life and reevaluating where are my single use plastics in my life? Like where do I use the most single use plastics? What are some better alternatives that I can implement for those things in my life? And are they practical for me? Um, If everybody just kind of did that, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to just do everything in one day. And I think that's where people get hung up on things Mm -hmm. is they try to make the changes too fast Mm-hmm. and all at once. And it's more of building healthy habits. So pick one thing for a week and change it and then add another thing and then add another thing. Once you have that down into a habit, you know, just compound these good behaviors and then before you know it, you know, you'll have a lifestyle change in that way. Um You know, you can look at your personal care products, your household cleaning products, try to switching to non-toxic, you know, that water that you, you know, flush down your drain, it goes somewhere and the toxins in it go with it. So, um, you know, we can all kind of, we can all do a little better than we're doing right now. And it doesn't have to be a dramatic change, but if everyone just does a little better, it's going to make a huge impact. I agree. I think it's really funny you mentioned it just becomes like a total lifestyle change. And it's something that I've like worked on over the years and I have people come over and ask me for a paper towel. And I'm like, I don't, I don't have those in my house. (laughs) It's not plastic, but I don't have them in my house. Um, So I'll give them, you know, a nice rag, (laughs) a nice kitchen bar towel. (laughs) Well, and even, and even now they have um, really cool, uh, replacements for that like you can get bamboo cloths basically that are that you can wash so they come on a roll you that's what we have at our house um, we use them to clean up all the time and then we just throw them in the washer and then we reuse them 
they even have just like, I mean, like you said, you could have just like rags or like folded up on your counter. Like there's, there's things that you can do to kind of um, offset that for sure. All right. Those are some excellent solutions. There's a million ways that you can kind of reduce and be a part of that solution. If you guys are looking for like concrete examples, head over to the website, marinebio.life slash resources. I have a whole resource of ocean friendly products. Um, so feel free to peruse that, check it out, pick one thing, commit to it for like at least a week. If it takes you a month to get that nailed down, nail it down before you pick another thing. But there's some very easy things to kind of flip-flop in your life to reduce your plastic output, for sure. Mm -hmm. So um, let's chat about climate change and nests and how it's impacting the nests, sea turtles. Climate change, hot button topic. The earth's heating up. <laughs> sea levels are rising. <laughs> These are all things that are affecting sea turtles. Um, sea turtles are one of the unique species that not only use the ocean but they also use the beaches so land and sea they have a little bit of everything with the land-based part of this and the i mean increasing temperatures affects the land and sea but with the land-based part of this sea turtles sex determination is determined by the temperature of their nest for the most part um and so if you guys haven't listened to episode four it's hot hot chicks and cool dudes so <laughs> It's the easiest way to remember it. Um, so the hot, hotter the sand, the ladies like it. They turn the, We get mostly female sea turtles, cooler sand. We get dudes. Um, lately, we've been getting a lot of females. Do you want to chat a little bit about that, Lori? Yeah, so that was basically or is part of um, Dr. Weineken's lifelong studies mm -hmm. down in South Florida is the sex determination due to climate change so she's looking at different nests up and down the east coast and trying to see the trend over time of if those ratios of male versus females are being skewed and what we're finding is that yes they are and they're being skewed towards females so we're getting about 90 percent females here in south florida and you know that can be due to hotter sand temperatures, which I know we did see, um, or I have seen a lot, especially with the leatherbacks. Um, when the sand temperature gets so hot, it's, it's baking these hatchlings in their nest, and we're having a higher mortality rate. Um, so there is a, a level of, you know, hot versus too hot, for sure. And um, we are kind of starting to see some of that, which is not so good and then i mean you brought up a good point earlier about like lean and so so with with the climate change we get more extreme weather events and not just i mean here we get hurricanes but not just the hurricanes in the fall we have these uh very notorious what we call fall tides um they usually coincide with king tide and we and with the fall winds that come through our beaches get inundated with water and this isn't good for sea turtles um, because they need to be in hot sand in order to actually properly incubate and cook um, and so when you have inundation in in a nest usually that spells not good nesting hatch rates so it's something else to consider as like sea levels rise and as we get these more intense storm events and weather patterns change it's just another aspect that influences 
wildlife and in this instance sea turtles yeah no that's a really important point um because they can take a little bit of moisture due to the tides depending on where they're laid um on the tide line but you know what like you said what we are seeing is these with the water levels rising which in south florida we are seeing this um quite frequently and it's uh very prevalent down here these nests are actually getting inundated with water for longer periods of time and it is affecting the hatchling success and and not only just that you know these stronger storms uh sea level rise it's taking away you know the beach and that's where they nest and we already have limited beach space as it is so it's just making their nesting habitat shorter and shorter and shorter which is an issue as well so i want to wind up here with a couple of lessons that you learned from dr jay nichols who right who has written a wonderful book called blue mind and i feel like that's might be what he's most known for in the everyday world but in the turtle world he's he's a sea turtle biologist and he's done mm -hmm. a lot of really wonderful things and you actually got to take a course with Dr. Nichols, could you explain what the courses and some of the lessons that you learned? Yeah, so I had an opportunity in college to go do a little study abroad for a summer over in Mexico. And um, that's where I met Jay was through the School for Field Studies. And um, I was in a little fishing town called Puerto San Carlos, which was on the Baja Peninsula. And he came in and uh, taught one of our lectures. And he's, like, like you said, a really prevalent um, sea turtle biologist over on the West Coast. And a lot of his research is done down in Baja, California. And there was just what he said about um, these three takeaways. The, the main thing that sticks in my mind, um, these three principles that he taught were in terms of conservation and um, trying to protect and conserve this species is that the first principle that we need to think about is what we're putting into the ocean, which we've kind of covered with marine debris, industrial chemicals. Um, we also need to look at what we're taking out of the ocean um, in terms of bycatch and poaching, entanglement and fishing gear, ghost nets, things like that. Um, and also the third principle would be destroying our coastline. So whether that's through coastal development, sea level rise, seawalls, which every time you put a seawall up in front of a building on a beach, you're going to get a decrease of beach in front of that seawall. And so that's just less habitat, like a sea turtle can't nest there. So the more seawalls that we have on these coastlines, um, you know, that's why renourishments, one of the reasons why renourishments are such a huge thing here in Florida, you know, people love their beach, but yet we keep building on the dune and then spending all this money trying to put the beach back. And it's kind of ridiculous concepts if you think <laughs> about it, but, um, but yeah, those were the three principles that he, that kind of really stuck with me from his lesson. And it kind of, um, encompasses everything that we were just talking about. So what we're putting in, what we're taking out and destroying the coastline. If you can kind of just think about those three principles um, in management, it's important to, to address those when you're talking about conservation. Absolutely. 
Great points, Lori. This was super fun. I'm laughing because I was like, oh, we'll talk for like 20 to 30 minutes. Lori, yeah. It's going to be at least an hour, Kara. And she was yeah. way more accurate than I was. Yeah. I, I kind of knew that we were just going to get talking. And I knew that the... Um, the threats was going to be a big one because we both talk for days about that for sure. Especially since sea turtles are such a canary in the coal mine, you know, like they are. if you see issues with this species that uses both land and sea, it's a good indication of global health, you know, and our environmental health, you know, the more that we can kind of understand what's affecting this species, the more we can kind of better the health of the planet in general, I think, and that's going to better all marines, it's going to just help all marine species. Absolutely. And us. all species, all land and all species, and human. <laughs> exactly. I agree. Love it. Lori, thank you for chatting sea turtles with me. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. This was this was definitely a good talk. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life that's patreon.com backslash marine bio life thank you for listening to today's show i'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. if you enjoyed this episode leave a review and of course share with your friends If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.